Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 festival podcast, Starry Starry Night, proudly presented by Heartland Bank and hosted by ardent book lover John Campbell. The evening featured Naitahu storyteller Joseph Hullen, Scottish poet Robin Robertson, Ghanaian British documentary filmmaker and author Yabba Beidou, English poet Holly McNish, New Zealand author Rajoshi Chakraborty, British author Philip Hoare, author of Leviathan, and finally, American activist and poet Sonia Renee Taylor. Hello everyone, it's really lovely to be here. Welcome to Starry Starry Night. I'm so delighted to be here with you all in this beautiful venue whose survival and restoration are blessings in a city that richly deserves such blessings. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I would like to say thank you to the Word bosses and Word staff, all of you, but it's Rachel King, bless her wonderful Rachel, who gets me here despite the fact I never answer my phone ever or respond to texts or emails or any form of communication at all. But Rachel is as tenacious and unbowed as the city itself, and I am here and thrilled to be so. Now, they're sitting on the side of the stage, the glorious group of writers that we're with tonight. And so what I'm going to do is welcome them in alphabetical order. We'll get them to come out and do a brief circuit of the stage, and then they can return to their chairs. Um, and so, uh, welcome in alphabetical order, by first name, this shit is important because there's no favouritism here, ladies and gentlemen, to our very special guest tonight, Holly McNish, Joseph Hullen, uh, Philip Hoare, or Hoare, as he was called on Seven Sharp last night, making, <laughs> making him tongue of Fenua, which is pretty cool for him. Uh, Rajoshi Chakraborty, uh, Robin Robertson, Sonia Renee Taylor, and Yaba Beidou. Please come out. Well, that was a tremendous evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> what, a fine, what a fine collection of heads and hearts. What a treat to be in their company. Uh, thank you, all seven of you, for coming. Some of you are from a long way away. Now, rather than interrupt the night uh, like a jada bar every time someone finishes uh, in order to introduce our next guest and take two minutes giving you biographical details, which actually you're probably not that interested in, I thought I'd do all the, the introductions in one sweeping vista now. And I started writing this intro weeks ago, and I only finished it on Thursday, uh, not because it's any good, but a far greater flattery to our seven guests because I kept getting distracted by their work. One of the great joys of reading is discovery. That's an old cliche, of course, but for me, it's that moment when you look up from the page or from something heard if the writer is reading their work and realize you weren't alone in feeling that way, that other people felt like that too. The shared struggle of being human, what we have in common and how we all try to find our place in the world. And I accidentally became a little bit obsessed with that as a theme for my introduction. Uh, I think tonight does have a theme, adventure. So my adventure is going to be trying to link our writers along the theme of their shared search for a response to being human. Here's what happened. I Googled Holly McNish, first of all, ages ago. And when you Google Holly, uh, just her name, three videos come up on the screen. And the first video is called Polite. And I really like to be polite. 
And here's a young person, I think, writing about manners. Go, Holly, I'll play it to my own children, little bastards. They could do with some of that instruction. And so I watched the poem, and it's an absolutely fantastic poem about giving someone a blowjob. <laughs> about, actually, it's about not really wanting to, but doing it anyway, because there's approval there, or belonging, or something that makes you feel wanted, or not simply alone. And I watched it, and it is such a perfect evocation of the way adolescent hope and uncertainty makes us made us shy and reckless and fatalistic all at once, vulnerable and desperate to pretend otherwise, that it made me feel the confused and desperate hope of being 17 again, 37 years on. <laughs> and I watched every Holly McNish poem on the internet. Holly's honesty is such an invitation to want to know her. She's unflinching and hopeful too. You're such a generous poet, Holly. And because I love books like That Girl in Polite Hope to Be Loved, and because I'm a nerd, and because I like to have books as friends forever, I went online and bought a signed first edition of Plum, which Polite is from. And that's how my relationship with all the authors began. It's been a very expensive exercise. <laughs> and I went on, marveling at each author, learning their stories, their words, discovering, as I hope we will tonight, the surprise of what they know, of how they see the world, of things they told me that are new to me, but also of the human things we strongly share without ever having met until tonight. One by one, I discovered them. Yaba Beidou, who is a writer and a documentary maker, and who, as she says in her extraordinary documentary film, The Witches of Gambaga, which you can watch at home on Prime Video if you subscribe to Prime, uh, and it's worth getting for, the, for, 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 for Yaba's documentary alone. I was born not trial from Gambaga and educated in Britain. She doesn't mention that education included King's College, Cambridge. But she takes us to Gambaga, once the capital of Ghana's northern region, now desperately poor, and she meets the witches who've sought sanctuary there. They aren't witches, of course, but there are over 1,000 women living in camps because what Arthur Miller taught us about Salem held for them too. Accusation is guilt, bad luck is guilt, omens are guilt, misogyny is guilt, success can be a form of guilt, even chicken blood is guilt. I met in the documentary Mahawa, 20 years at a witch's camp, who tells Yaba, if I'm here at Gambaga, I can't deny that I'm a witch. Confess or be killed. To be born a woman is to be born under a shadow of suspicion. And here's the thing, those separate, different, unconnected lives, so unlike each other in every apparent way. Holly's character in Polite, Mahawa and Gambaga are both trying to find their place in the world as women. Be patient, one woman in Gambaga says, and then God will find a way for you to go home. And the girl in Polite, wanting him to finish so they can snog again, the hope of something better than this and the making do. Which leads us to the third of our authors tonight, uh, the third woman with us, Sonia Renee Taylor, author, poet, spoken word artist, and so much more. I traveled down on the plane with Sonia today, and it was just a treat. Uh, Sonia is the founder of the Body Is Not An Apology movement. The body is not an apology. Here we have the repudiation of the idea of woman as witch, pleading guilty when not guilty, submissive with a view to please or survive. Here we have standing upright. Here we have the self as an act of defiance. The body is not an apology, which I've watched 
like Holly's poems, over and over again. Do not present the body as communion, confession. Do not ask for it to be pardoned as criminal. The body is not a crime. It's not a gun. It's not a lost set of keys, a wrong number dialed. It's not the orange burst of blood to shame white dresses. The body is not an apology. I think if we're very lucky, Sonia may do that for us later. And where this came from, a conversation between Sonia and her friend Natasha, who feared she was pregnant, and when Sonia asked Natasha why she had had unprotected sex with a casual partner, Natasha said her cerebral palsy made it difficult to be sexual, and she didn't feel entitled to ask her sexual partner to use a condom. Again, the same issues, the vulnerabilities, the questions about how to be. And Sonia says, just be. And the idea of a radical self-love is born. Self-love can be radical not just in image terms, body terms, but for anyone who does not disappear into the soft cover of what we define as normalcy. Ask Natasha, ask the witches of Gambaga, ask Holly's girl and polite, ask Holly McMish herself and embarrassed, I'm getting tired of discretion and being polite. An extraordinary poem about breastfeeding. And next author, ask Robin Robertson in At Rowan Head. Now, Rachel King emailed me the link to this poem to watch it, and I did, it's sublime. And it contains the line, Yaba, Robin, all this witchery. The four sons, her husband left her, said they couldn't be his. They were more fish than human. He said they were beglamoured. Here we have why the women are sent to the witches' camp in Gambaga. Here we have male fear, male jealousy, male rage. Here we have how unafraid we are, how, sorry, how afraid we are of what's unlike us, what we don't understand, and how not belonging has its terrible weight. Again in his poem, The Fisherman's Farewell, from Hill of Doors, the sense of being marked apart. They would be rumour if they could, and then they would be less even than rumour. Who are we? I love the way Robin gives us uncertainty as part of his answer to that. The searching, sometimes he lights upon ordinary wonder, as in the beautiful ending to Advent in County Fermanagh. The town drunk emerges gingerly from the bar, amazed by the familiar patting his pockets, blinking like Lazarus. But other times, Swithering, the title of Robin's third collection, to be uncertain or perplexed about what to do or choose, doubt, hesitate, dither, Mahawa was told she was a witch and therefore became one. And Robin is drawn to metamorphosis, Acteon, who sees Diana bathing and is turned into a stag, then hunted down and killed by his own hounds. And elsewhere in this work, in, in uh, Robin's work, in his striking... Uh, uh, strikingly in Hill of Doors, a collection in which Dionysus appears, the only Greek god born of a human mother who is what? Well, amongst many other things, a shapeshifter. Which brings us, I'm really trying to weave our writers together. I'm looking off, how am I going, writers? Oh, good to Hey, great, thank you. Shit, you're lovely. Although you know, you can obviously tell already that I'm a very needy person, so I... <laughs> um, which brings us to Philip Hoare, Rising Tide, Falling Star. What a wonderful book. Uh, as with Robin, but even more here, uh, the sea is a central character, the central character alongside Philip himself, who knows so much about so many things and evokes him so persuasively with such flesh and human understanding. People always mention David Bowie in this book, but his Wilfred Owen is so vivid to me. So people always mention um, Robin's writing about David Bowie, but his Wilfred Owen is so vivid to me and rising tide, falling star. Um, there's a lovely line uh, Philip uses, he was part of my resistance against the normal world. For me, before rising tide, falling star, Wilfred Owen had always, had always occupied the kind of sanctity he gets from English classes, the way we're taught him. And 
tones of reverential awe. Uh, after this book, he is a man to me. He's beautifully evoked. A passage that has been much commented on in Rising Tide, Falling Star is the one in which Philip lies down on the beach beside a dead dolphin. I quote, the beautiful naked animal is smooth and patterned as a piece of porcelain. There was nothing morbid about it. It still seemed full of life. Clearly displayed on its underbelly is the animal's genital slit. Philip inserts a curious finger, as you do. <laughs> Which is starting to make Holly's polite look quite quaint. But if we go back to the sea inside, Philip tells us dolphins are not the benevolent mammals we'd like them to be. Those beaming faces hide the minds of assassins. Philip was swimming with dolphins at Akaroa yesterday. So where do we stand? Are we the witches or is nature or neither or both? What's true? Holly, that superb line of yours from uh, your response to the charge of the light brigade. My granddad said, don't believe dignified history. So what do we believe? Who are we? And where do we find ourselves? In ourselves, says Sonia, in the sea. Uh, by the way, Philip, that passage from the sea inside where you swim with a huge pot of dolphins off Kaikoura is electrifying. I quote, for a moment I think they're going to swim right into me, a ridiculous notion. They, like the whales, register my every dimension, both inside and out, my density, my temperature, what I am, what I am not. And in a way, that's what everyone here tonight is asking. What I am, what I am not. Which brings us to Rajoshi Chakraborty. And why you're here, Rajoshi, Raj, in my mad tapestry of connection is because of a lovely thing you wrote to introduce yourself for a seminar you were giving. I quote, in recent years, I found that much of my fiction returns in different ways to the question of truly noticing or more often failing to see other people. Yes, that's it. That's it. And what you do, Raj, and Holly does, and Yaba does, and Sonia does, and Robin does, and Philip does, and Joseph does, is notice, really notice. My responsibility was the effort, said Martha Gellhorn in my all-time favourite quote about journalism. Raj's most recent novel is The Man Who Would Not See. In a way, it's kind of pinter territory, the damage that does not repair itself within families, the wounds that do not heal. Raj uses the word hardened. All of us who've ever nursed grudges or grievances or not undone them long past, they had their meaning, know that exactly. And when the two brothers have been divided by, the, by this, hardened apart, set hard, re-enter each other's life, the damage colours everything. Rajoshi does this so well, it's almost painful. You, want to, you really want to yell at one of the brothers in particular, which makes you a kind of participant in the family dysfunction. And the impediment is not the incident itself, not anymore, but the inability to see uncoloured by it and the way we, as reader, even find ourselves taking sides. To not be, true, to, to, sorry, to not be seen truly is a terrible thing. Ask the woman in Gambaga. Ask the people Sonia mandates to feel valid and whole who felt less than whole because why? What our writers do, all of them, and this is why it's such a pleasure to be in their company, is search for truths beyond the service, beyond what's said. Robin's wonderful poem, The Shelter Ends, then I looked more closely and saw what it was. Yes. And that brings us to the last of our seven speakers. And the, sorry, the last of our seven guests tonight and the first of our speakers, Joseph Hullen, who's going to come and join us on the stage when I finish. Kaitiaki, storyteller. Joseph works for Te Runanga o Naitahu, 
And this, of course, is Naitahu country. They've been in Te Waiponamu for, what, 800 years, more? Like us all, Joseph loves this place and he knows it as well as anyone and celebrates it with a passion that is contagious. In 1998, the Crown settled with Naitahu in a treaty settlement that was an act of seeing with two eyes, an act of truth, an act of making whole. The Crown Apology is a thing to read if ever you doubt why settlements were and are required. The treaty was signed in 1840, of course. By 1864, the Crown and the New Zealand Company had acquired 34 million acres, 138,000 square kilometres of Naitahu land, and Naitahu had received less than 15,000 pounds. Naitahu became tenants in their own land, dispossessed, rendered less than they were, marginalised. It took until 1998 for the Crown to address that, and 20 years on, Naitahu remind us every day what happens, to paraphrase Rajoshi, when you are truly noticed. It is a story of respect and dignity restored. It is a story of being made whole, and as this great city rebuilds itself, it is a story that should inspire us. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here in the company of seven people who it seems to me have in common an insistence that things that deserve respect should get respect. And the harder we truly look, the better we will truly know. Please welcome Holly McNish, Philip Hoare, Rajoshi Chakraborty, Robin Robinson, uh, Sonia Renee Taylor, Yaba Beidou, and our first speaker, Joseph Hallam. Ah, tene teruru e ku kaukau nei ki hai mahiti hiti ki hai maraka maraka. Ko te upoko nui o teruru te tere kau. He po he po he ao he ao kaua te ti hei maudiora. Fata rama te munga ki runga wai makarere te awa e re re ki te tai. Tu ahuriri te tangata ngati hini matua te hapu ko Joseph Hallen toku ingwa. Kia everybody. When I was a boy growing up in this town, there was no outward reflection of my mother's whakapapa. My dad is a fifth generation New Zealander. He moved to Kaiapoi from Gisborne when he was a nine-year-old boy in 1948. If I wanted to see anything that reminded me, even resembled my mother's whakapapa, the Naitahu narrative, I'd go down to Ferry Road and the Hepara Pai, the chapel of to Waiponamu Māori Girls College. For my identity's sake, not a great example. I'm not a girl. <laughs> I could go down to Springfield Road in the Rehua Marae, but you had to know exactly where it was because it's at the end of a long driveway. It was privately, bought, privately funded by the old boys of the trade trading scheme. It was intended as a pan-urban, pan pan-Māori marae, all Māori. So it wasn't really me. My maraia tuahiwi, our hall, our whare, um, as we call it, was a community hall, a general purpose hall, built in 1922 and suffering from borer. In 2011, as many of you all know, um, we were shaking the shit out of. <laughs> Sarah was created and the, the response to the Christchurch earthquake rebuild started and it became aware that as treaty partners, Naitahu would have a place in the rebuild and an opportunity to 
announce their stories, to take back our identity, to stamp our mark on the city that we live in. It's ironic, and the irony's not lost on me, that 21 years ago we were given $170 million as part of the treaty settlement. Um, last year we topped about $1.5 billion. South Canterbury Finance bailout was $1.7 million. We're almost up to that. An advisory group from Maimarae at Tuahiwi was created, Matapōpiti. Matapōpiti literally translated can be used to say cherish, be alert, be vigilant, hold fast. And so Matapōpiti was an opportunity for us to have our say in the Christchurch rebuild, to offer cultural narratives for various anchor projects, to try and embed integrated artworks, to see cultural mo motifs that will remind every Ngāi child that yes, they have a place in this town. Yes, you can celebrate your identity. The cultural narratives that we write are fit for purpose for each of the anchor projects, and they have a relationship to something, to one of our values at home, at Tuahiwi. For instance, we call Cathedral Square Fitirea. Fitirea is the name of the House of Paikia. Paikia is the ancestor who rode to, New to Aotearoa on the back of his whale. Paikia is the father of Tahu Pōtiki. Tahu Pōtiki is the eponymous ancestor of Ngai Tahu. So the square takes the name of our eponymous ancestor's father. The Christchurch Central Library is named Tūranga. Tūranga is the place where Paikia arrived. He brought all of the collective knowledge that we understand and we know with him. Tūranga on the Christchurch Central Library acknowledges the travel of knowledge, the collection and gathering of knowledge and the holding of knowledge. So it's consistent with our value and it's fit for purpose for the building that it sits on. Matapōpiti, we tried to normalise the use of te reo, of Māori language and everything that we do. Just down the road is the Margaret Mayhi Playground. Its translation, its Māori translation, Tākaro Apoi. Tākaro Apoi is a play on Kaiapoi, the ancient parasite of Ngai Tuahuridi, which in its day was the Dubai of Stone Age South Pacific. <laughs> Literally, it was a hub where resources were brought into the centre and then traded out. And that's why the loss of our lands, the loss of our traditional food gathering sites, um, hit us hard. The opportunity for intergenerational wealth disappeared. My mother's grandmother used to grow walnuts and sell them in bags to raise enough money to pay the rates on her land. Eventually, she would lose some of her land because she couldn't keep up with the rates because the rents didn't pay for it and she had a number of children and grandchildren to feed. Other projects, other things that, that we articulate. I sit on a number of other committees, the Canterbury Aoraki Conservation Board. I'm the current chair of the Tukohaka Tuhai Tata Trust, which manages the coastal wetland park between the Waimakariri River and the Rakahuri or the Ashley River. Whenever we advocate for stuff, it's stuff that's beneficial to the environment. For instance, the Peter Tahori building, which sits across the road, or sits on the side of the old Christchurch Police Station, or those of you of a more senior vintage on the old King Edward Barrack site. When, the, when Naitahu Properties um, indicated that they were going to develop the site, 
the stormwater queens from Ngaituahu to Dirunanga said, you must treat on site all of your stormwater before it's plumbed into the Avon River network. And every time another development goes up in Christchurch, Ngaituahuridi and the stormwater queens point out you must treat your stormwater on site before it flows into the Avon River network. But it's expensive. Ngaituahu properties can do it. We walk the walk, we talk the talk. I go back to what I said at the, at the start. My dad is a fifth generation New Zealander. He married a Ngaituahu woman. His brothers and sisters didn't. Their children are my first cousins, so they share my whakapapa, just a different strand of it. When I stand up in front of a commission hearing or in front of a bunch of developers and I ask for any number of um, mitigations for the project that they want to put in place, I ask for aspirational values, clean water, lots of water, clean land, lots more native plantings that attract birds, birds that bring bird song feed the spirit and feed your wairua. And I ask on behalf of our children. Ngaitahu, we have a whakatoki called, uh, which goes, Motato a mokauri a muriake nei, which literally translates mean for, not just for us, but for our children and those who come after us. When I stand and ask for this kind of stuff with my Ngaitahu hat on and is standing in a special position because of representation on committees and boards where I wouldn't normally have the opportunity to speak, I speak not only for my Ngaitahu family, my Ngaitahu whakapapa, but all of my whakapapa. And by connection, all of your whakapapa because your children have the same aspirations as ours. We're in the middle of the whitebait season, that quintessentially New Zealand activity. Go down to the river, catch yourself a feed, break some eggs into a bowl, mix your whitebait, make a patty, put it on a bread, too much salt, and sit there replete afterwards. We all want that to continue. Habitat destruction and water quality issues are the threat to that. So when we stand up and we ask, we ask on behalf of everybody with our special relationship. When I found out I was coming along here tonight, I really didn't pay too much attention. I just trusted um, one, of, one of my colleagues, Helen Brown. I just trusted her. She says, seven minutes, you'll be fine. <laughs> I then asked, um, what's the format of the show? Because I thought, oh, yeah, we'd all be sitting out here and John would be asking questions and we'd be having banter and I could exercise some of the school skills um, I learned over the weekend with Tartipani O'Regan, <laughs> public speaking. <laughs> I could do imitations and sit there and go, you make a very good, pungent argument, Joseph. <laughs> or use tricolons talking about people who offended us, who were pursuit of diminutive stature, of questionable origins, and even more questionable morals. Talk about stories of our ancestors, women who are insanely beautiful, perfectly proportioned, men who are not only tall, dark, and handsome, and fit as a mallee bull, um, but, you know, who could leap tall, bounding, uh, tall buildings in a single bound. And the purpose of these workshops was to be able to articulate these stories and pass them on generation to generation. And yet, all of the group who are going to follow me, they'll talk to you and they've written books, they've made movies. So as a guy who grew up in Kaiapoi 13 years ago, 
who disappeared from this country in 1979, went on a holiday to Australia and returned in 1997. <laughs> Open ticket. <laughs> At the time that a cultural resurrection and a cultural renaissance of all things Naitahu was happening, I was very fortunate. Very fortunate to stand in front of you in the, in the company of such esteemed guests, in the company of such an esteemed broadcaster. Tomorrow I'll take a walk um, around some of the sites in Christchurch where we've embedded these artworks and these narratives in the built form of the Christchurch rebuild. If you haven't got a ticket to come for a walk with me, you're missing out. <laughs> Kelda. The shelter. I should never have stayed here in this cold sheiling once the storm passed and the rain had finally eased. I could make out shapes inside the occasional sound, a muffled crying which I took for wind in the trees. A wasp stuttering there at the windowsill. I listened. What looked like a small red coat was dripping from its wire hanger. There was a shift and rustle coming from the bucket in the corner by the door. I found inside a crumpled fist of balled up paper, slowly uncrinkling. On the hearth, just legible in the warm ash, my name and dates. And above that, in a shard of mirror left in the frame, I caught sight of myself wearing something like a black brooch at the neck. Then I looked more closely and I saw what it was. Scotland, eh? Um, and the city isn't much better. Um, this is a, a, a short, very short poem called Hammersmith Winter. It is so cold tonight, too cold for snow, and yet it snows. Through the drawn curtain shines the snow light I remember as a boy sitting up at the window watching it fall. But you're not here now to lead me back to bed. None of you are. Look at the snow, I said to whoever might be near. I'm cold. Would you hold me? Hold me. Let me go. Audiences um, 
visibly brightened when uh, I say that the next poem is about a cat. <laughs> but then I spoil everything uh, by revealing that it's a cat dying of cancer. <laughs> cat failing. A figment a thumbed maquette of a cat, some ditched plaything, something brought in from outside, his white fur stiff and gray coming apart at the seams. I study the muzzle of perished rubber, one ear eaten away, his sour body lumped like a beanbag leaking thinly into a grim towel. I sit and watch the light degrade in his eyes. He tries and fails to climb to his chair, shirks in one corner of the kitchen, cowed, denatured, ceasing to be anything like a cat. And there's a new look in those eyes that refuse to meet mine, and it's the shame of being found out. Just that, and with that loss of face, his face, I see, has turned human. The great Scottish poet Hugh McDermott uh, was not known for his relaxed, easy charm or warm, tactile nature, or indeed any sense of humor. I never met him, um, but uh, in this short poem, I imagine an encounter that both of us would have found intolerable. <laughs> the, the Tweed. <laughs> Giving a back rub to Hugh McDermott. <laughs> I felt through the tweed, so much tension in that determined neck, those little bony shoulders, that when it was released, he simply stood up and fell over. Um, two short love poems now for Karen. Um, eight lines each. The first is set in Isla on the Hebrides um, as we escaped, and the second is set in our home. Port Nahaven. We walked the cliff of Port Nahaven, listening to the grey seals sing on Orsay and Eileen McConaugh across the little harbour. Were they singing for the love of being in this place, like us, far from griefs? And were they also singing as we were to each other? The key. The door to the walled garden, the place I'd never been, was opened with a simple turn of the key I'd carried with me all these years. But it would be quite wrong of me to end 
uh, and leave you on such an upbeat note. <laughs> because I know that's not what you came for. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read um, uh, one of these um, invented Scots narratives that I enjoy inflicting on people. And um, this is dedicated tonight to the wonderful Rachel King, who has brought us all here and looked after us so well. It's not much of a gift, but it's all I have. <laughs> At Roan Head. You'd know her house by the drawn blinds, by the cormorants pitched on the boundary wall, the black crosses of their wings hung out to dry. You'd tell it by the quicken and the pine that hid it from the sea and from the brief light of the sun, and by Angus the collie lying at the door where he died, a rack of bones like a sprung trap. A fork of barnacle geese came over with that slow squeak of rusty saws, the bitter seas complaining pool and roll, a wicker of pigeons lifting in the wood. She'd had four sons, I knew that well enough, and each one wrong, all born blind, they say, slack-jawed and simple, web-footed, rickety as sticks, beautiful faces, I'm told, though blank as air. Someone saw them once outside, hurtling down to the shore, chittering like rats, and said they were fine swimmers, but I would have guessed at that. Her husband left her, said they couldn't be his, they were more fish than human, said they were beglamoured, and searched their skin for the showing marks. For years, she tended each difficult flame, their tight, flickering bodies. Each night, she closed the scales of their eyes to smoor the fire. Until he came again, that last time, thick with drink saying he'd had enough of this, all this witchery, and made them stand in a row by their beds, twitching. Their hands flapped, herring eyes rolled in their heads. He went along the line, relaxing them, one after another, with a small knife. It's said she goes out every night to lay blankets on the graves to keep them warm. It would put the heart across you, all that grief. There was an otter worrying in the leaves, a heron loping slow over the water when I came at scrake of day back to her door. She'd hung four stones in a necklace, wore four rings on the hand that led me past the room with four small candles burning which she called the Room of Rain. Milky smoke poured up from the grate like a waterfall in reverse, and she said my name, and it was the only thing and the last thing that she said. She gave me a skylark's egg in a bed of frost, gave me 
twists of my four sons' hair, gave me her husband's head in a wooden box. Then she gave me the sealskin, and I put it on. Thank you. Well, that's fantastic. So we've had uh, Selfies and Marcus, we've had Naipatu and Joseph, and now we're going to get Yaba. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please, this is, this is fantastic. Uh, please welcome to the stage Yaba Beidou. Good evening. I'm going to read the opening chapter of my novel, A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars. The novel tells the story of Santi, who, when she was a baby, was coming from Africa to Europe by boat, uh, illegally, of course, and um, the boat that her parents are on are scuttled, and they, her parents are able to save her by putting her inside a sea chest and throwing her overboard. Her little chest is found uh, on a beach in Spain, and um, uh, she's adopted by the woman who finds her, Mama Rose. But from she was very small, she's always had a nightmare which haunts her. And when she's 14, the nightmare becomes very real because the ghosts of the undead, unquiet dead, um, want revenge and they want a reckoning for what's happened to them. But this is the dream that um, haunts Santi. There's only one thing makes any sense when I wake from my dream. I'm a stranger and shouldn't be here. Should my luck run out, a black-booted someone could stop, step on me and crush me as if I'm worth less than an ant. This I know for a fact. And yet once or twice a week, the dream seizes me and shakes me about. Kill them, kill them, take their treasure. The order goes out, and a dilapidated trawler in a stormy sea shudders. An iron gray vessel lights blazing, rams, in, rams it a second time. The iron monster backs away then with engines at full throttle, lunges again. Faces contort, old ones, young ones, men and women, brown and black faces, screams punch through the air, fishing nets tangle, spill over. A fuel tank explodes and the sea glows roiling with blood and oil. Below deck, a stench like an overripe mango oozes from a crouched woman. She shrieks, my baby, my baby, save my baby. A tall man responds with a command, the sea chest, fetch our treasure quickly, for the child's sake, move. A figure tumbles into the sea, then an old man a girl in his arms leaps. 
a deafening jumble of sound and sea swallows the cries of the drowning. The slip-slip patter of bare feet on galley stairs ascend. Anxious eyes flit in faces bright with fear in the flame light. The hand of the tall man pummels a pillow of yellow dust, then a footrest filled with glittering stones for the baby's feet. Someone folds a cloth, a fine tapestry of blue and green, into a blanket. Give her this, says a burly, bald-headed man, my dagger to help her in battle. May the child be a princess, a true warrior, valiant in the face of danger, yet merciful to those she defeats. May your spear arm be strong, my daughter, the tall man adds, your legs swift as a gazelle's and your heart the mighty heart of a lioness protecting her cubs. The petrified woman scribbles a note and hides it beneath the pillow, whispering a prayer. May our ancestors watch over you, my child. May the creator of all life guide you and make you wily in the ways of the world we are sending you to. The gray vessel, a trail of carnage in its wake, surges forwards with a splutter of gunfire. Bullets splinter the deck, tearing it open, and the trawler erupts in flames. The tall man grabs the baby and bundles her into the chest. He holds it aloft and flings it into the sea. It lurches, almost capsizes. The baby gurgles, entranced by the rough play of water as a wave steadies her boat. She smiles, a jigsaw of fire and stars reflected in her eyes, and she stretches a dimpled hand to touch the moon. Burning timber from the trawler's bow crashes down and splashes the baby's face. Enchanted by flying embers, she coos. But when the sobs of the dying reach her and waves stifle their gasps, she begins to whimper and flung to and fro, bobs up and down, crying in the night. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Yaba Badu, uh, Yaba Badu. Thank you so much, Yaba. It was beautiful. Uh, this is fantastic. Holly, come out. Um, so this is so Holly. Once Holly's halfway through, we're halfway through. Because there's seven people. Um, it's so lovely to have you here, Holly. Ladies and gentlemen, Holly McNeish. What a nice guy, huh? I'm going to read just a few poems dedicated to my daughter, just because I think she's the most, probably the most adventurous person I know at the moment. And I, I'm really hoping that all the sort of shit that society puts on her soon is not going to stop that. So uh, I'll, I'll read these ones, and then I guess I, I'll finish with the, with the blowjob poem, which I had no intention of reading at all, but I feel like I should now. <laughs> all right, so this poem, <laughs> the first one about my daughter is called Wow, and I, I wrote it while 
I wrote it when my daughter was about one. She's about eight now. And um, it was the first day I'd put a mirror back up in my, in my flat after, after having her. And I don't know about anybody else, but I, I obviously knew how, how babies were born, but I didn't really know quite the effect on the body that would happen. And, um, and when I went home, one of the first things I did was to take down the full-length mirrors that I had in my house, only two. And, um, and then when my daughter was about one, I... I put one back up to see an outfit or something and my daughter was naked and she immediately crawled up to the mirror and stood at it and then started to gawp at herself and I realized that because her stupid mother had taken the mirrors down she probably didn't even know that she had a body and um, <laughs> so she sort of started to look at herself <laughs> and stare at her belly and her bum and then started to kind of bounce up and down and then she started to applaud herself <laughs> and I thought that she's <laughs> probably more intelligent at one than I am at 26. So basically, I, I wrote this poem while my daughter was clapping her ass in the mirror. I'd say, so yeah, this is called Wow. My body is amazing. I can almost hear her saying it. As she stands naked at the mirror, hands clapping in applause to it. She's naked, bold, and proud. Her mouth open wide and round like, wow, my body is amazing. She's one year old and loving it, big belly sticking out, thighs like mini tire towers, and when she looks at her reflection, she always shouts aloud like, wow, this body is so great. Gazing down now, I try to do the same. Ignore the plastic advert spreads that pass me on the way. I say my body is amazing, despite what some might say. I say my body is amazing, despite the claims you make. The nip and tuck and cuts and sucks that fill my walk to work each day. Enhancement ads and happiness will only come with curves this way. And if I lay in front of you today, clothes dropped to the floor, you'd prescribe me what I could have less of and what I should want more of. A tick box, what could be chopped off. Your red pen ready, hand aside, your eyes deciding what to slice from lips to cheek to bum to thighs. The lines below my eyes, you say, I ought to peel or pull away. My breasts will start to sag one day, that breastfed baby there to blame. She came into the world, you say that's great, but now behold your face, your saggy stomach, baggy eyes, stretch marks, skin, you look and sigh. My eyes tighten, my legs inject, my thighs cut back, my head perfect, my stomach flatten, my breasts enhance, don't smile too much, oh God, don't laugh. As you mark me, like a canvas page, encircled bouts of red, I feel the need to tell you, you might praise this skin instead. Because as you chat about correction, you're plucking cuts and lasers, briefcase stuff with time relapses, scalpel lead erasers, I take up your red pen to my cheeks and mark two stripes on either side. A naked, painted warrior could be a sore sight for eyes because I am ready for your battles now. My body's felt the worst. No scalpel cut intense as that last damn push of birth and I have seen with awed amazement what a body brave can do and now I'm marked like tribal tattoos with the tails my flesh went through. But those stripes that line my saggy stomach mark me like gold and the folds below my eyes tell a tale just as bold. My laughter lines are getting deeper now because I smile twice as much. So if you palm read these first wrinkles, my life would light up. The official position is that smooth skin is queen. But without any lines, there's no reading between them. A storybook is opening. My life has just begun. And once upon never plays if I cling to line one as you try to cover the living I've done. As a human, a woman, and now as a mum. 
But your red pen can't rub out the nights I've not slept, the parts that have bled or the laughter I've wept. The baby I held in a stomach that stretched, the breast that got heavy so baby was fed. The parties I've had out, the sleep I've missed out on, the dinners I've shoved down my throat like a python. As you pile on the pressure to cover my life, I wonder what the hell is so wrong with your sight. If my mind and my memory can tell you my tales, then why can my body not tell them as well? As our babies stand naked, applauding their skin, I can't wait for their lives and their lines to begin. Thanks. <clears throat> well, I'll do very, two very short poems about my daughter and then I'll move on to the, to the other one. Um, <laughs> But yeah, these, these are actually two poems that I wrote in Sydney. Um, this probably doesn't make Sydney look very nice, to be honest, but um, that's okay. It's another country. Um, so yeah, the two poems I wrote there. And my, my, um, one of the things that people have said to me ever since my daughter was born when they see us is um, how little she looks like me, which is fine. Like Maybe she doesn't, but it gets pretty fucking annoying after a while. And... Um, <laughs> And her dad's uh, family are from Jamaica, and my family are all from, from Scotland. And, um, and yeah, people have always said she doesn't look like me. But then in, in Sydney, we were there for two weeks, and it was a very white area of Sydney, not, not very diverse at all. And um, instead of saying how little she looks like me, people started to ask if she was my daughter, so much so that I used to just say no and sort of stare at them to see, <laughs> to see what they would do. So these are... <laughs> These are two short poems that I wrote for her in um, the lovely Australia. <laughs> Colours. Sometimes I think people must have never seen the colour green. Mixed blue with yellow on a palette, sat back inside it. How beautiful it is to have more than three colours in this world, not just yellow, blue and red. Sometimes, I think people must have cur never curled a paintbrush round a bend, seen indigo or turquoise blends, orange, brown or purple trends, just yellow, blue and red. I think a lot of what Alice Walker said, contemplate how the gardens here, the beaches, the clifftop views, the seaweed caught between your toes would glow if we never mixed things up a bit, dipped our feet coldly in just yellow, blue and red, set in primary solidity. No mixtures, please, three colored blobs on separate plates of paint, splitting rainbow rays into the most basic set of shades. When people ask me if the little girl with me who holds my hand and calls me mum and walks along the beach with me is mine, I wonder if they've ever seen sunshine split through raindrops or stop to watch how paint morphs into new shades every time you stroke the brush across a page. Angel, you're the most beautiful child in the world but their angels do not look like you. You're the most blissful vision I've seen in my days, but their angels are not in your hue. You're the reason I've thrown their Bible away. You're the reason I don't close my eyes when they pray as their angels are pale-faced, blonde and blue-eyed. You're the reason I've thrown their teachings aside. Because there is angel in your curly brown hair. There is angel in your caramel face. There is angel in your dark soil eyes. There is angel in your quickening pace. So walk away, little kid, walk away from their martyrs, their angels, their saints. Walk away, little kid, walk away from their pens and their paper and paints. Walk away, little kid, from their praise until Jesus is drawn in truer dark shades, until the colonized faces are not so cheap, until angels in museums in large gilded frames look exactly like you when you sleep.
uh, one more poem. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, this is called Polite. Nobody's ever really picked up on this poem before, to be honest. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, yeah, I wrote it about being 17, basically, and I guess um, I don't know if much has changed. I've got quite a lot of friends that have, have something they call Blowjob Sunday, um, but nobody seems to have like a Cunnilingus Saturday, which maybe <laughs> they, just, <laughs> they should add in. But yeah, I just I guess I just got bored of um, <laughs> reading it. I did a, a poem for Jorex recently and read a lot of poems about orgasm inequality. So I think I'm just a bit bored of women doing things I don't really like that much. Um, so this is this is one time when I did that. <laughs> it's called Polite for an Adventure. Um, it was weird being on your knees when you didn't want to, not forced, but not really free choice, is it? When you think you better just do it. And he's your boyfriend, and you wanted that, and nobody's told you otherwise. And you're just trying to be nice, and he's just trying to be liked, and you're just trying to be polite, really, and you don't really mind, but you don't really want it in your mouth that much. Lips open larger than a standard spoonful. Hair covering face to avoid the gaze. He might notice your mouth is down at the edges, as if you're watching a film that someone else chose, and you're not enjoying it that much, but you're not really bothered, as long as there's popcorn, salty, not sweet, and no one gets hurt. Thinking of other things now. Your jaw's a bit locked now. Just wanting him to finish, really, so you can snog again. Thank you very much. Thanks, Holly. It's the last line that gets me, so you can snog again. It's, a be it's beautiful. Oh, well, it's... It's, it's the way we play act, isn't it? It's the way we dress up. It's the way we pretend to be somebody we're not when the shit we really want is actually quite simple uh, and very human. Anyway, so we've had, what have we had? We had a Kiwi, uh, a Scot, a British Ghanaian, a Brit, a UK Scot English person, and now we're going to uh, back to a Kiwi. Uh, born in India, has lived in... Um, in Canada and uh, took creative writing in Edinburgh. Now very much a Wellingtonian uh, and writing wonderfully in Wellington. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Rajoshi Chakraborty. Something unusual happened on the way to writing my last novel. For starters, it wasn't meant to be a novel at all. And secondly, it altered something in reality even before a word of it had been written. My writing has never altered anything in reality before. <laughs> the plan had been to write a work of nonfiction based around a disappeared aunt of mine a sister of my father's, of whom nothing had been known for years. My father's family is large. He's one of 10 siblings and scattered around Eastern India. For these reasons, but also other, more mysterious ones that I hope to uncover, he had lost touch with this particular sister with whom he'd once been close over the past four decades, yes, decades, 
They last saw one another in the mid-70s, a couple of years before I was born. But at some point more recently, in around 1992, this aunt of mine had disappeared from her more immediate family as well. And as far as we'd heard, her whereabouts, her fate, and even her reasons for leaving all remained unclear. So, my research began via Skype with long interviews with my parents in Calcutta, followed by conversations with a couple of aunts and uncles during my next visit to India, at the end of which I had about 40,000 words worth of transcripts. And then something unexpected happened. My father had been incomparably trusting, generous, and candid during our long Skype conversations about his sister. And the process of thinking about her for weeks unlocked something further within him. My parents let me know they were going to contact my missing aunt's children. My father wanted to end this absurd, decades-long silence that had grown out of inertia as much as anything and talked to his three nephews and nieces for the first time. I could not have been more delighted at this utterly unexpected outcome of my wish to write a book, but even more was to follow. The phone conversation went so well between my dad and two of his nieces that my parents decided to visit them in my father's hometown in Upper Assam, not far from the border with Myanmar. It would be my father's first visit home in 40 years. And, incredibly, the visit, about which I had quiet apprehensions, was full of warmth and welcome. Everyone was simply amazed to have all this lost family back in their lives. Everyone was amazed to have got used to such incompleteness simply through habit. So there I was, the family member in me elated, but the writer slightly confused. <laughs> Suddenly, the work of nonfiction that I had been planning that was going to be full of complexity and sharpness that hoped to step a little into the darkness of my aunt's disappearance as much as I wanted to interrogate the blind spots and unconsidered perspectives in all the different testimonies I had gathered felt completely like the wrong book to be writing. Here were my cousins asking when I was going to visit them now that my parents had been, and here I was planning to hurl a live firecracker into their world by bringing back in so raw a manner the pain of their mother's absence, as well as, more or less, accusing my entire family of failing to notice that my aunt had been slipping away for years. And yet, there were those 40,000 words of transcripts, those months of interviews, 
even a skeleton for, for the new book. I learned something about myself that fortnight, which is, to put it simply, I'm not V.S. Naipaul, <laughs> nor was meant to be. The family member in me quite easily trumped the writer. I could not jeopardize this wonderful reunion that had just been, all the trust that was slowly reforming. And yet, I was also depressed. I had to farewell a book that would never be born and find material somewhere to generate another. And that was how the man who would not see began, as the book that could not be. Somehow, in that confused moment, years of writing fiction came to my rescue. What if I recast my material as a novel? What if details could be disguised or altered while keeping the essence of my quest? In fact, adding to it, because now, my most recent years in New Zealand as a stay-home dad, so full of richness and questions of their own, could also form a part of the story. Most of all, what if the hardest questions in the book were posed to a character based on me? What would I have done in the situations in which I'd been judging loved ones like my parents? The man who would not see is the distillation of all these unexpected adventures and choices made by other people that took place even before a word of it was written. And there's one further adventure within it whose end I shan't disclose. The following year, as I planned to visit my cousins in Assam, I'd also reached the final part of my first draft, at which point I made a slightly reckless decision. Perhaps as a nod to the ghost of the original nonfiction that got me started on this journey, which was that whatever takes place during the coming days in Assam will also form the ending of my novel. The man who would not see is the reason I'm here today. Yet, in a very real sense, everything that has followed the publication of this particular book has been a bonus. This book earned its reason to be even before it appeared. It broke down a wall inside my father, following which so many people crossed over and came together. Thank you. So, what a lovely story, Raj. Thank you. Uh, and we should all call our sisters tomorrow. I'm going to. It was a fantastic story, thank you. Um, but by the way, everyone is reading from books, uh, and all the books are available. Uh, there's, there's no signings afterwards, but signed copies are available out the front, aren't they? They're treasures. These books are treasures, and the writers are a beautiful company. And the next writer who is joining us tonight uh, is Philip Hall. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Hall. Thank you, Jamie. 
I'm going to read two short sections from my book, Rising Tide, Falling Star. Out of the blackness, obscure noises drift from the docks, booming over the water. The red lights of the power station chimney blink like an industrial lighthouse, summoning and warning. You can be what you want to be in the dark. For me, it used to be nightclubs under London streets. Now it's another nocturnal performance. An hour before dawn, before the light starts to stain the winter sky violet, I ride back to the beach. Foxes sidle out of the woods and rabbits flush their white scuts at the approach of my bike light. High in the trees over the shore, a pair of tawny owls converse in screeches. Crows hang in the branches, all angular tails and beaks, as if they'd been born out of the bowls. All these creatures own this place in the interregnum of the dark. They should not be anywhere else. No one could have told you when you were young what would happen. They didn't dare. It's enough to realize that what we have lost is still ahead of us. I see things that are not there. One magical moment, I feel like a penitent. The sea is so still, it seems like a sin to break its surface, but I do. Swimming at night with diminished sense of sight only makes the act more sensual. You feel the water around you. You lose yourself in its sway. Fish bite me leaving loving grazes. I turn on my back, watching the stars fall. I first saw it slumped on the weedy slipway one afternoon. A deer sprawled at the high watermark. It looked perfect lying there, thrown up by the tide, staring glassy-eyed at the sky. Had it died trying to swim across from the forest? Or had it slipped and fallen, cloven hooves clattering on the concrete with panic in its eyes? Perhaps it had been shot, although there was no wound in its russet pelt. The next day, someone had hauled out this sea deer, this antlered seal, and impaled it on the spikes of the metal railings. It hung there by its neck, dangling as a warning, the way farmers nailed dead owls, wings outstretched to barn doors. I wanted to relieve it of this indignity, to take it down from its cross, but I hadn't the strength. So I waited to see what happened next. The following day, it reappeared on the shore as if it had climbed down overnight. It was accompanied by a carrion crow, tentatively but intimately pecking away at the flesh, performing the last rites. I wished the bird well and a good breakfast. I forgot about the carcass until a week later I came across its remains in the surf. By now the body had been reduced to a single strand of vertebrae, picked clean by crabs and gulls. It was down to its essential scaffolding, its skeletal beauty twisted like the ghost of a horned sea serpent lolling in the water. The stubby antlers sprouted from the bulbous, rough-edged rings on the forehead. Caught between them was a scrap of fetlock-like fur. Skeins of grey flesh still hung about the skull, scrappily attached to the thin white bone. I had to have it. 
this grotesque piece of flotsam, something to add to the pile back home, the fragments of blue and white china, the clay pipes with the blooms still on them, the shards of misty sea glass, the chunks of green-glazed medieval pots, the stones pierced with holes. Using a bit of driftwood to hold down the spine, I pulled at the antlers, twisting and wrestling them as with a bull. It occurred to me as I did so how easy it might be to detach a human head. With a stagger, I succeeded in wrenching off my trophy, my prize for having watched so patiently. I had to gouge out a gelatinous eye before stuffing the skull into a plastic bag and tying it to the back of my bike. I rode back from the beach, passing walkers who wouldn't guess at my cargo. Back home, I opened a hole in the warm brown earth and buried the head up to its antlers. They stood proud of the soil like a pruned rosebush. I piled rocks on top to guard against predators and went back indoors to wait till the antlers sprouted and grew like branches. And as below the surface, the skull grew roots which became bones, its lost vertebrae, femurs and ribs all restored ready to rear up out of the earth a resurrected, newly grown deer of my own. Everyone on the bridge is in a good mood, looking forward to the day. But the depth gauge, as the, as the depth gauge draws 2,000 feet, sorry, 200 feet, the outlook changes as abruptly as the ocean floor falls away beneath us. The land to our starboard, such as it is, has been submerged under a sea fret. It's as if the view had reached the edge of an old projected film fading into fuzzy nothingness. The boat sails straight into the mist and everything around us disappears. The sky and the land vanish into one vast cloud. All we are left with are the few yards of water immediately around the boat. We're entirely insulated, wrapped up in damp cotton wool. One minute holiday sun, the next murky obscurity. How do you look for whales in conditions like this? I asked Lumby, Mark de Lumber, our captain for the day. His camouflage cap is pulled down over his eyes. He doesn't look round as he talks to me. Cut off the engines and listen, he says, for the sound of the blows. But today, Lumby has assistance. Chad Avalar, another young fisherman of Azorian descent who could sail these waters in the dark, is ahead of us and radios back what he has seen. Lumby charts a course ahead, or rather, he follows his own instincts. He plays the sea like a pinball machine. Perched on his captain's seat, eyes ahead, he stabs at the radar screen. See those blips, he says? Those are the whales. Conditions deteriorate. The boat rolls with its weight and hours, lurching from side to side. Crappy weather on the way, says Lumby. We seem to be moving ever slower, dragged back by the banks of fog. My heart sinks. It's my last trip of the season. 
Even if we come upon whales, will we actually see them? Everything is gray, there's no horizon, no context. We might as well have drifted into the Arctic or the Bermuda Triangle for that matter. The silence explodes with blows. Of course it does. We are surrounded by whales, as if they'd been there all along, only now choosing to break cover. The water bursts with their exhalations. We can't tell sea from sky, but these animals are producing their own weather, their spouts merging with the mist. They are feeding voraciously, bellowing, blowing, rising up through their own bubble clouds, eight whales at a time, piercing the surface, cooperating in an orgy of consumption. It is visceral, indisputable, audible furore. Whales are not tentative. They do not fuss and bother. They do not falter. They act uproariously, greedily, utterly in their moment. Lumby climbs up to the flybridge. As he does so, a dozen whales loom right off our bow. Their cavernous mouths open like gigantic frogs, fringed with baleen and roofed with pink strips like engorged tongues. It's a fearsome sight. We follow Lumbia aloft, clumbering up after our captain as if trying to get away from the beasts. From our eyrie, we look down through the mist. Everywhere, there are whales, lunging and fluking and kick-feeding, taking advantage of the fog to cover their gluttony. Fifteen humpbacks, maybe more. Then, as if aroused by their mother's furious feeding, the calves begin to leap. One after another, spindle-shaped bodies shoot out of the sky like pop guns going off. We don't know where to look. Lumbee holds the boat in position. He seems to be conducting the whole scene, even though he has lost control, like the rest of us. Jesus Christ, I exclaim, then apologize, hoping the passengers haven't heard me. No, says Liz, the poet naturalist, that's quite appropriate. The calves have begun to breach simultaneously, two, three, four, five, all together. They're more like dolphins than whales, I shout. No marine park could rival this show. As the sea bursts with the blows and foraging of the adults, it is blown apart by their breaching calves, creating abbreviated geezer spouts of their own. Up on the bridge, we've run out of superlatives. John, our hard-bitten first mate, is speechless. Later, in the afterglow of what we've witnessed, in a kind of apologetic embarrassment of emotion, he volunteers that out of 7,000 trips, this is one to remember, and it takes a lot to impress me. Liz and I assure our passengers should they assume that this sort of thing happens every day, that is one of the most extraordinary sights we have seen out here on the bank. Then I look at Lumby, under the peak of his cap, tugging at the cigarette jammed in his fist. He too is smiling to himself, as if he'd summoned it all up, as if the scene, all the more amazing for the inauspiciousness of its prelude, were a vindication of his magical skills, far beyond those of naturalists or scientists or writers. 
Like his fellow captains, Lumby has never taken a photograph of a whale. He doesn't need to. They're all there in his head. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Hoare from a book The Observer described as a masterpiece, although I saw it called a masterpiece in The Guardian as well, Philip. So two newspapers have described it as a masterpiece. Uh, we're going to end with our final writer for this evening, and uh, she is a treat. Um, on the page, uh, in voice and in company, ladies and gentlemen, Sonia Renee Taylor. Kia ora. Oh, yeah, I have to pee so bad. I've been holding it the whole night. Only good writers can make you hold your pee that long. Um, so I want to share a little bit about the adventure that is radical self-love, which is the work that I do in the world. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit from my book, uh, and then maybe I'll share a couple of poems if we have time. Living a radical self-love life is a process of de-indoctrination. It demands that we look unflinchingly at our current set of beliefs about ourselves and the world and get willing to explore them. I call this the act of being fear-facing. Fear-facingness is not the absence of fear, but the interrogation of it. While agonizing over the completion of this book, I spent some time emptying my brain at a friend's home on a private beach in Long Island, Bahamas. The island was slow and kind like a good grandfather. During one of our excursions, we drove westward down miles of crumbled, unforgiving asphalt until we arrived at a small beach. The sign at the edge of the road read, warning, Dean's Hole is the deepest in the world. Swim at your own risk. Two feet from the beach shore, the cerulean water stops being waist high, and within a few steps, the ocean floor drops into a cavernous 663 feet deep hole. Despite being a competent swimmer, fear consumed me. I was certain that the mouth of the deep blue hole would suck me down to its watery floor. In my research, I would later discover that my fear mirrored the exact superstitions that kept Native Islanders away from the hole. Needless to say, I kept my distance. It was at Dean's Hole where I met David Carrera, a freediving champion from Italy. Freediving entails using a cable to descend into extreme ocean depths without the use of breathing equipment. David holds his country's record with a 111-meter dive, the equivalent of diving off a 35-story building. He was taking a break from competition and enjoying the beach with his fellow divers when we struck up a conversation. It is in these chance encounters that I'm reminded that if we are open to it, we can find confirmation of our di divine pathway all around us. The dive is a spiritual thing, David said. I learn how to listen to my body. I must listen or I will die. In the water, I must learn the difference between fear and danger. He did not know it, but David was describing the journey of radical self-love. 
It is a damn scary process to probe the depths of our thoughts, ideas, and subconscious principles governing our daily lives. To be fear-facing is to learn the distinction between fear and danger. It is to look directly at the source of the fear and assess if we are truly in peril or if we are simply afraid of the unknown. The unknown is like fog. And of course, fog is frightening. Who knows what obstructions could be lurking about? What if there's a deer soon to be splayed on my windshield? What if I careen off a cliff while driving through the thick soup of fog? Living in body shame and body terrorism is to be stuck in an endless what-if fog, a place of inertia. The only way out of the fog is through it. We must dive into the unknown, trusting that our bodies will help us discern fear from danger. There is always a clearing on the other side of fog. To be fear-facing is to navigate cautiously and with alertness, but to continue on our journey. Before we parted, I asked David what continues to call him to the sport of freediving. He beamed at me, the Bahamian sun loosened behind him, and said, every meter is a tiny freedom. Yes, it is. I open this book with a poem that I wrote for my mother, um, who passed away in 2012 at the far too young age of 53. But I like to think that everything I learned about radical self-love, about living unapologetically in the body that I have, just as it is, I learned from her and all of her uh, unapologeticness. Uh, and so this poem, and it also made me think of Holly's poem about her daughter, uh, is for my mother. This piece is called My Mother's Belly. The bread of her waist, a loaf I would knead with eight-year-old palms sweaty from play. My brother and I marveled at the ridges and grooves, how they would summit at her navel how her belly looked like a walnut, how we were once seeds that resided inside. We giggled, my brother and I, when she would recline on the couch, lift her shirt, let her belly spread like cake batter in a pan. It was as much a treat as licking the sweet from electric mixers on birthdays. The undulating of my mother's belly was not a shame she hid from her children. She knew we came from this. Her belly was a gift we kept passing between us. It was both hers, of her body, and ours for having made it new, different. Her belly was an altar of flesh built in remembrance of us, by us. What remains of my mother's belly resides in a container of ashes I keep in a closet. Every once and again, I open the box, 
sift through the fine crystals with palms that were once eight. Fill the grooves and ridges that do not summit now, but rill through fingers. Granules so much more salt than sweet today. And yet, still I marvel at her once body in this form, even in this form, say, I came from this. The body is not an apology. Let it not be forget-me-not fixed to mattress when night threatens to leave the room empty as the belly of a crow. The body is not an apology. Do not present it as a disassembled rifle when they have yet to prove themselves more than common intruder. The body is not an apology. Let it not be common as oil, ash, or toilet. Let it not be small as gravel, stain, or teeth. Let it not be mountain when it is grass. Let it not be ocean when it is sand. Let it not be shaken, flattened, or raised in contrition. The body is not an apology. Do not present the body as communion, confession. Do not ask for it to be pardoned as criminal. The body is not a crime. It's not a lost set of keys, a wrong number dialed. It is not the orange burst of blood to shame white dresses. The body is not an apology. It is not the unintended granule of bone beneath will. The body is not kill, is not unkempt car, is not a forgotten appointment. Do not speak it vulgar. The body is not soiled, is not filth to be forgiven. The body is not an apology. It is not a father's backhand. It is not mother's dinner late again, wrecked jaw howl. It is not the drunken sorcery of contorting steel, round tree. The body is not calamity. The body is not a math test. The body is not a wrong answer. The body is not a failed class. You are not failing. The body is not a cavity, not a hole to be filled, to be yanked out, not a broken thing to be mended, be tossed. The body is not prison, is not sentence to be served, is not pavement, is not prayer. Do not give the body as gift, only receive it as such. The body is not to be prayed for, is to be prayed to. So, for the evermore tortile 10th grade knows, hallelujah. For the shower song throat that crackles like a grandfather's Victrola, hallelujah. For the spine that never healed, for the broken heart that didn't either, hallelujah. For the sloping pulp of back, hip, belly, hosanna. For the errant hairs that rove the face like a pack of misplaced wolves, hosanna. For the parts we have endeavored to excise, blessed be the cancer, the palsy, the womb that opens like a trap door, praise the body in its blackjack magic, even in this. For the razor wire mouth, 
for the sweet God ribbon within praise for the mistake that never was praise for the mistake you never were for the bend twist fall and rise again fall and rise again for the raising like an obstinate Christ for the salvation of a body that bends like a baptismal bowl for those who will worship at the lip of this sanctuary praise the body for the body is not an apology the body is deity the body is God the body is God the only righteous love who will never need repent Ladies and gentlemen, what, what, what we've experienced tonight, I mean, we all go to things, don't we? And, and a lot of the things we go to are endless repetitions of things that have taken place before. I love rugby, I go to a lot of rugby, I've seen the Hurricanes lose to the Crusaders many times. <laughs> I keep going. But what we've seen tonight, we will never see again, anywhere ever. We will never see these seven people in a room tonight with their life experiences telling those stories. The seven people who have been with us tonight will never be together again in a group like this, sharing those words with us. And it makes this really unique and really special. It makes it a privilege to be here. It also makes it a particularly human experience because they have shared with us profoundly generously, beautifully, movingly, and personally. That's why, Rachel, that's why you're out on the stage, <laughs> because this is your gig. So, so, and some of us haven't come from very far away. Uh, Joseph may, in fact, have walked here. But Joseph Hullen, Robin Robertson, Yaba Beidou, Holly McNish, Rajoshi Chakraborty, Philip Hoare, and Sonia Renee Taylor have reminded us what it is to be and to see and to feel and engage with the world with big heads and hearts. And it's been a wonderful evening. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. And can we have a final round of applause for our brilliant guests? <laughs>